Unlike the other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once for all when he offered himself. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you to be here with us in this place this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. On February 2nd, 1993, veteran weatherman Phil Connors was in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania to cover the town's annual Groundhog Day festivities. He expected to be in town for just one day. Late that afternoon, though, a blizzard struck the area, forcing him to spend the night there despite his desperate desire to leave. When he woke up the next morning, he discovered that it was, again, February 2nd. And that he had to live the same day over again, and again, and again. No matter what he did, when he woke up, it was February 2nd, again. And after a while, Phil realized that there were no consequences to his actions. He just kept waking up on the same morning, so he indulged all of his sinful appetites, doing things like robbing banks, trying to score one-night stands, and so on. But the loop went on and on and on. He could not escape. I suppose I should at this point reveal what I hope most of you already know, that this is the plot of the Bill Murray film Groundhog Day. The notable thing about Groundhog Day, at least for our purposes this morning, because as we all know, the most notable thing about Groundhog Day is Stephen Tobolowsky's performance as Ned Ryerson. But the notable thing for us this morning is that in order to break the time loop and escape from February 2nd, Phil Connors has to become good. That's the method of escape. He comes to Punxsutawney, a self-centered jerk, looking down on the hick townsfolk. And then, of course, in the time loop, he's a raging id, indulging the deepest parts of his darker side. But he must become a better man and begin to love the people of the town, and Andy McDowell in particular, in a self-giving way before he is released from his prison. It's a weird movie. But I'll tell you what, the trapped-in-a-time-loop genre has exploded since 1993, and I don't think that it's just because of the financial success of Groundhog Day, although that has something to do with it, to be sure. There are a ton of these movies. I looked a couple up. There are 12 Dates of Christmas, a TV movie about, you guessed it, a self-centered woman who has to relive Christmas Eve over and over again until she discovers what true love is really about. There's my personal favorite, Edge of Tomorrow, in which Tom Cruise has to live the same day over and over again in order to figure out how to save Earth from an alien invasion. There's a recent comedy called Palm Springs, in which two characters are forced to live the day of someone else's wedding and reception over and over again. This sounds like a particular hell. (laughs) 
There's even Mickey's Once Upon a Christmas, in which Huey, Dewey, and Louie must repeat Christmas Day until they come to learn the true meaning of Christmas. And I haven't even mentioned the multiple horror entries in this genre, all of which are too gruesome to describe here. And yes, of course, there's a Wikipedia page called List of Films Featuring Time Loops. The list has 50 movies on it. We humans are apparently fascinated with the idea of being forced to live the same day over and over again, and even more fascinated with what it might take to escape such a predicament. I think that the proliferation of time loop movies reveals a shared human anxiety. We all struggle with the incompleteness of life. You see, movies are often a window into the worries of the age in which they are made. And I think this is a particularly clear one. Life, for so many, is just a series of repetitive struggles with no seeming escape. Career, family, self-improvement. Nothing ever seems finished. And completion is something that everyone is looking for, but that no one can seem to find. There's a reason that everyone in the world resonated so profoundly with Jerry Maguire's You Complete Me. I think with that, we're done with the movie references for the day. That's it, I promise. But this is true. We all seek completion. And we struggle to find it. Perhaps never finding it. That's why there are so many of these stories of people trapped having to live the same day again and again and again. And we all know this in a much closer to home way too, don't we? I know know I've told you my sofa story where I was living my life subconsciously thinking that if I got the exact perfect sofa to fit this particular space in my living room, we're actually living in Ambridge, Pennsylvania at that time, ironically not that far from Punxsutawney. I thought that if I got the right sofa, just the right sofa, then I would be complete. And then we actually got it. And I was complete for one day before a rainstorm revealed that we had a leak in the trunk of our car, leaving us with a trunk full of dank rainwater. Then I was incomplete again, facing yet another struggle. And that was years ago. But apparently I have not learned my lesson. I exist day to day, even now, waiting for the next thing that I hope subconsciously will complete me. Today, in fact, is a prime example of that. For months now, I've been looking forward to starting worship here in this room. Then, I thought, then we'll be in a place where things are sort of set, where they need to be complete where things are okay. But now that we're here, I'm worried about the fall retreat, stewardship campaign, and there will be things after that, and things after that, and so on, forever. It seems like my life will never be complete. You can see the appeal of a story like Groundhog Day, and the even greater appeal of finding a way out of such a story. And so we come to Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 23. 
The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests those who are subject to weakness. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Our inability to feel complete and the nation of Israel's practice of annual sacrifice actually have a common cause. Both lives are lived in the shadow of an almighty, holy, and eternal God. No wonder we don't feel complete. No wonder the blood of an animal, even a spotless one, could not completely atone for sin. In the same way that I'm always looking for the next thing that might potentially complete me, the nation of Israel always had to look forward to the next time their righteousness would be brought up to date in God's sight. The problem, though, was that there always had to be a next time. As soon as the sacrifice was offered, the benefits began deteriorating. Soon enough, just a year later, another sacrifice would have to be made. And the year after that, and after that, and so on. And for us, there also always has to be a next thing. As soon as I meet one mile marker in my life, the satisfaction starts to go away. And another mile marker pops up on the horizon. It's never done. I'm never complete. Israel's sins were never completely forgiven. We are, and the nation of Israel was, trapped in a time loop. So how to escape? Well, Bill Murray had to get good to get out. But we, like Israel, never seem to get there until Jesus. As Hebrews says, Jesus is our great high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need to offer sacrifices day after day first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once and for all when he offered himself. This is the way out. When Jesus offered himself for the sins of the world, the time loop was destroyed. No more repetition necessary. The entire sacrificial system that had been instituted by God was torn down. Remember, the veil of the temple was torn in two. The barrier between sinful humans and a holy God 
which had been bridged only by the high priest's annual sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. This separation was ripped apart. This is why in a few minutes when I break the bread at the communion table, I'll say, Alleluia. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed once for all upon the cross. Once for all. Christ was separate, we read, perfectly holy, but then broke through that separation and gave his perfect holiness to us. And in him, we are complete. And such completion, such perfect holiness actually changes everything. First, most fundamentally and most importantly, of course, it changes our actual relationship to God. We were, in our sin, necessarily separated from him. We were dead. And now we have been raised to new life and made right with him. We are in communion with him, enjoying all the benefits of being sons and daughters of the Almighty. But the good news doesn't stop there. It just keeps going. Because of this reoriented right relationship, our lives right here and now are reoriented too. When I was telling you all those stories about how I never feel complete, I couldn't stop thinking about Jesus' admonition not to worry in Matthew chapter 6. Because I'm a worrier. It's a lengthy piece of scripture, but it's worth reading for its convicting power. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Thanks, Jesus, and stick in the knife, O you of little faith. Therefore, he says, do not be anxious, saying, what will we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Jesus says to me, do not be anxious, saying, where will we worship? Or how many people will register for the fall retreat? Or... Who will pledge generously in 2022? This is a convicting litany, to be sure. My feeling that I lack completeness reveals my lack of faith that my Father in Heaven has made me complete. And statements like this should convict us. Indeed, it is good to be convicted. We should redouble our efforts to actually believe that Jesus means it. When he says that his father will take care of us infinitely more than the birds of the air or the flowers of the field. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. But listen, 
for the Christian, for you, conviction is not the end of the story. This is an utterly revolutionary idea because in every trial you've ever seen, conviction is the end. The only thing that comes after the conviction is the sentencing. Not so for you. Jesus' admonition not to worry does convict you, just as it convicts me. It does spur you on to bolster your faith, yes. To read your Bible more, to pray more, to believe more, all these things, yes. But Jesus is not here only reading a list that might be heard heard as a summary of charges against you. He's also reading a list of promises made to you. Promises made in his name, given to you. We don't have to be worried about what we will wear, what we will eat, where we will worship, or any of these things, because we have a God who promises to care for us. Because we have a God who actually does care for us so much that he broke down that dividing wall between himself and us. He sent his son the great high priest, to sacrifice himself in order to end all sacrifices. Our relationship to God is no longer built on the blood of an animal or on the quality of our work. It is built on the blood of a son. And because our relationship with Almighty God is built on the blood of a son, And by that blood, we have become sons and daughters. We find that a miracle happens. We actually do believe that our faith and trust actually does grow. We eat and drink each week, remembering that blood, and we find a miracle has happened. We do worry less and cast our cares on him more. And God, again and again, proves himself faithful. Faithful even to give us the very faith that we often lack. He gives us faith and trust as he has given us everything. He is holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Absolutely. And yet in Christ, he came to you and came in your fear in your rebellion, in your doubt, in your sin. And then Jesus took that rebellion and sin onto his own shoulders and endured the thing that we fear the most, the turned back of Almighty God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus made that anguished cry so that you would never have to. So when Jesus closes out that section of his sermon on worry with that phrase, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, what could sound like a simple yet impossible commandment has for you been shorn of its teeth. That commandment, that good, right, and true commandment that you should not worry clamped its teeth down on Jesus Christ. And here's good news. Because it condemned him, it cannot condemn you. Remember, there is now no condemnation 
for those in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for you. When Jesus says not to be anxious, he says, therefore, do not be anxious because of something. Do not be anxious, he says, because of all God has promised to do for you. You don't have to worry because God keeps his promises. He loves you. He will care for you. He's got you. This promise, this ever-reliable, sacrifice-destroying, life-giving promise is built on nothing less than the blood of the Son of God shed for you. The Son of God, Jesus Christ the righteous, has given His righteousness to you. In him, you are made new. In him, you are complete. In him, you are saved. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.